Hello and welcome to the Six Sales podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Sales. Today we are um, going to be speaking to Faris Jacob, or just Faris, um, if you follow him on Twitter. A bit like Ronaldo, the Brazilian one, only one name required. So, uh, Faris, welcome to the to the show. Um, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Mike. Yes, you, you'll notice that I am at least aspirationally what's known as mononymous. I'm, I'm aiming to be the Faris. That's, that's fine. You are the Faris. And as far as I'm concerned, you definitely have already reached that accolade. So um, Faris, for those that don't know, um, is the founder of a creative company called Genius Steals. I won't um, do so much of the introduction. I'll, I'll ask him to do that uh, himself in a second. Mm -hmm. And also author of the book Paid Attention, um, which has recently been... Um, updated for 2022 so uh, excited about that that's news to me actually today so um, that's on my in my Santa uh, sack this year at least I hope so so Faris maybe you could give us a bit of an introduction to your career to date um, the inspiration behind um, launching Genius Steals um, answer the question if um, that's in fact an Oscar Wilde quote um, or part of um, yeah or if there's okay. another reason for it um, and then we can kick off from there if that's okay yeah, there's three pretty chunky pieces there, so I can definitely kick off with that, mate. Um, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And if you remind me, I'm happy to send you the new edition uh, for, uh, for Christmas. So just let me let me know. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, give it to give make, it to make a change from socks. <laughs> socks are a great gift. I have no problem with socks. Yeah. They're a great gift. Anyway, so hello, I'm Faris. Nice to meet all of you and to meet you, Mike IRL, uh, or at least you know this version of IRL. Time, eight, like synchronous in time. Um, I let, yeah, okay, my career was the first bit, right? Let's be very quickly talk about my career uh, for about, oh, okay. I started as a management consultant in the late 90s. It was very exciting. Everything was going to be worth a bazillion dollars. We're all going to be rich. I basically, you know, one, being an adult within the first year of working. Uh, that obviously vanished about a year later when the consultancy collapsed and all the startups we'd taken all this money from blue chips to invest in went away. And I made, I learned, I guess, a valuable lesson about what happens. Um, lesson that I think a lot of people are, are learning and about to learn more so this year. Um, one of the good things about being around for a while is that you see different of these cycles. Uh, we've done enough of this now to see it again and again. Yeah. So consulting was interesting. It was intellectually rigorous. I had to wear a suit, though, that annoyed me. Got into advertising through a circuitous waving path. I did interns at music rec record labels. I did an internship at a magazine. I got a job writing advertorial copy for Maxim magazine for a while in London, all of which I thought would be cool. They were less cool than I'd hoped they would be when I got there, and they didn't pay any money, and they weren't intellectually very exciting to me. Frankly, you, you had shed the suit though, so it wasn't a complete. That disaster. was a, a key part yeah. of it, yes. But yeah. I, I was like, I just I thought it'd be a lot cooler than it turned out. Maybe that's always the way the sausage being made, right? Anyway, um, I thought I should learn a profession, a craft, and ultimately I ended up applying for a large graduate intake in a media planning agency called OMD. That was a long process, and I became a planner. And then after a year and a half of that, went to Naked. I spent like five, six, seven years working at Naked, which was a pioneering integrated communication strategy and creativity consultancy, um, which was extremely cool, unbelievably fun, and full of brilliant, brilliantly smart people that had kind of found themselves exiled from the rest of advertising because they were just frustrated by the linear structures that kind of typified advertising at the time. Uh, did that in London, did it in Sydney. Uh, had decent success, did it in New York, 
and then was headhunted to be the chief digital officer of McCann Erickson, the world's largest advertising agency and their largest office of two and a half thousand people in New York's amazing midtown skyscraper system, uh, which is a very different thing, a very different way of thinking about advertising, very different. Mm. And then I got headhunted again to go work for a holding company and they let me set up a small digital agency, which I'd only owned a tiny fraction of because they paid for everything. And eventually I wanted to extricate myself from those systems and um, that was about 10 years ago where I realized I didn't want to work for other people very much anymore and I didn't want to live in one place. I wanted to leave New York. Five years there was lovely, but I wanted to do something else. So my wife and I left, started traveling. We had speaking engagements in various places and on the back of those kind of just slung shot around the world for a year and began to get pretty quickly approaches from old colleagues, friends, clients, people in the industry about maybe lending a hand with various things. And that was enough work to make that year profitable, even though we were traveling the whole time. And then Rosie said, what if we just do this? So we founded a company and that was 10 years ago in March that we've been traveling and working. So that's the first bit. Too long. Sorry. <coughs> Genius cool. Deals. Genius Deals we set up. It is a nomadic creative consultancy because we thought we would start working in one way and we end up doing very different things that I wasn't expecting. So we work with brands um, like Coca-Cola, like Gibson Guitars, like Intercontinental Hotels and smaller ones too especially on how they operate with their agencies. So we have a long-running engagement with a conglomerate out of the UK that owns Twining's Tea and about 70 or 80 other brands. It's ABF, it's called. It's a massive company. It owns Primark. And we work with them for years now on marketing excellence around the world in various parts of that process. We work with agencies of every discipline and geography on their brand and business model, as well as internal workshops and training. So... Account planners have very rarely been media planners. Um, creatives have very rarely been planners. We've been all, I've been a creative director, I've been a planner, media, creative, me and brand. I've set up an agency, I've sold an agency, well, the bit I had. So like, we have a broad purview of the entire business that I think is valuable to people that haven't had that and agencies hire us for that kind of assistance. And we work with our good friends at say the Meta Corporation or at other uh, media companies because they want to talk to agencies and provide value in those engagements, and we are the kind of value they can provide. We don't compete with anybody, we help everybody, and we um, wander around. And that's the second bit. And then the third bit, yeah. Genius Steals, yes. You may know it as a Oscar Wilde quotation, it is not. It is also attributed to Picasso, he did not say it, nor did he write it. It's a quotation. it's like everything on the internet. The first level of the internet is somewhat loose-weaved and mostly lies, unfortunately, at this point. And every quote you see on a quote website is basically not true unless there is a direct, paginated source. It yeah. is not true. The actual quote, the only one... Sure, actually... I saw him say it on Facebook just the other day. I'm yeah, sure, exactly, I'm sure yeah, with a picture as well, so it must be real. Yeah. Right? In, in meme form, these quotations are all over the internet, appended to whichever luminary it seems relevant at the time or that seems apposite to the quote. Uh, T.S. Eliot did write something in a piece of criticism that he wrote, uh, immature poets borrow, mature poets steal. And it is, that is the, the origin of the quote. It's been changed since into genius and given to other people to say. But that is, yes, the origin of, of the idea. Um, 
because our company is based on a set of beliefs about what creativity is and what it is not. We believe that originality is a myth, that nothing comes from nothing, that one cannot invent with that infantry. All of these are quotations, all of whom are paraphrasing other quotations endlessly because that's how literature and art and all creative things come to be because they exist in a world of other creative things. Um, and so that's part of our principle of how we do our job. So I find it fascinating, your, um, your life, if you like. Um, I love working from almost everywhere other than an office or home. Um, yeah. I love the idea. I've, I've taken a laptop onto a beach before and it's been lovely and sunny and mm-hmm. I've worked in pubs and restaurants and you name it. I've tr- train stations, yeah. on trains, on planes. You know, I just love being somewhere where there's an atmosphere, there's things going on, but they're not directed at me, if that makes sense. So sure. no one's going to ask me for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's happening. So there's there's things going on. So you've worked in an office, obviously. You've worked at um, O&D and Naked and, and um, in, in New York for five years. Yep. And now you've worked, I think, um, la- uh, you know, if we're keeping up with you, um, you're on a Mexican island at the moment. So, so you've yep. kind of been in all of these different environments. Do you find that being able to change your environment whenever you see fit aids creativity? Yeah. So uh, 100% in some senses and not so in other senses also. So offices are very good for certain things, especially when one is young, because one knows nothing. And so learning is an important part of why one wants to be around other people who know something. Okay? There's a huge degree of value in that, and I found it very valuable. Equally, I think when I was young, my ability to be in a space surrounded by people who are doing affiliated work playing music very loudly and, you know, all the stuff that we did at agencies when we were young was good. It made sense to me. I could, I could work in that environment. Now I cannot work with loud music playing. It is not something I enjoy. I can't turn it off in my head. And so I'm like, I want to be able to focus and be yeah. on my own to work. If I'm writing, I need to be on my own. Being around people, yeah. just my brain will fracture with every possible distraction because it doesn't want to do work. It wants to be going off to play. So you have to wrestle it, and that wrangling is easier if I'm isolated. Um, So you work with your wife, and I work with my wife, and and we write here, and you write. So how do you find that? Um, I try and find space. Yeah, and and I'm sure my wife wouldn't mind me mentioning, um, but she probably won't listen to this anyway, so I'll, I'll get away with it, but... Karen likes to talk, and I like, and I need to have quiet when, when I'm writing. I need to have quiet so I yep. can focus on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And those two things, um, when you're working with your partner, um, can be an issue, right? Because yeah. if you want to ignore your wife to work, that's not ideal because you're ignoring your wife, <laughs> and that's yes. a dangerous strategy, as, as I'm sure you'll agree. So, a hundred percent, yes. And it's about divide. I mean, it's about working out how your your working style works, and also. Demarking time and setting boundaries. I'm very bad at this, but I'm learning to get better at it because like, we're all very amenable to help each other work the way we want to work, me and my wife, you and your wife. But sometimes it's like what's obvious to you because you're like, I'm writing, I need some quiet, is not obvious to the other person, even though they are your, your partner and they know everything about you. Sometimes it's just not, they're not mind readers, right? Um, yeah. Even though you kind of think they are because you can model them so effectively in your head and vice versa. But doesn't give you like future knowledge so it's hard but at a broader sense right one of the triggers for this lifestyle was a a realization that creativity is about looking at the world and constantly finding the connections that exist between all the things thanks to the stuff in your brain right Mm. 
like, you know, uh, is it Leibniz or Locke that says nothing in the mind that doesn't come from the senses, right? That's tabula rasa. You only can have ideas based on things you have seen, heard, absorbed, and then had put in your head. That's it. Yeah. Now there's, there is less extreme versions of that, but and ultimately you can't use words unless you learn how words work. So there is some truth to it. It may not be absolutely true, but it's mostly true, I would say. Yeah. So that requires you to be paying attention, to see things and to cogitate on them, the connections, right? You've got to be paying attention. And I noticed when I was commuting to the same office every day, especially if I wasn't cycling, especially if I was on a train or somewhere where your brain is not involved in keeping you alive, mm. I would get to the office and I would have no recollection of, of the, tra the trip at all. Yeah, happens all the time. Like none. And I then I realized that. that was happening not just for the commute, it was happening for my life. Like, uh, I could remember which office I'd worked in in the five years in New York, but apart from that, I had no real distinct memories of anything apart from going to an office, being in a meeting. That was it. And then not being in meetings and doing fun stuff outside of that, right? But like, I realize my brain, your brain turns itself off. Habituation is a way to, to keep us alive and to save energy. So we just stop processing the same stimuli when it's put in front of us again and again and again. The system one thinking, right? It's, a, it's that automated exactly. system. And if, if everything's always the same, then we just go into this sort of trance of 100%. automation. Yeah. yeah. And like Kahneman, yeah. Kahneman wrote, wrote, spoke about this after the, the stuff he did, Tversky, he wrote about the experiencing self and, the, and the, the remembering self and how they're two different things. A bit like system one and system two, but it's a different, it's a different metaphor. They're both not real, they're both metaphors, right? But like the experiencing self lives in real time. It's doing this now. The remembering self will not remember this. It doesn't remember most things. Most things just go away because it just doesn't care. They're not important. They're just like, it, they're just normal things. Going to the restroom every day your brain is not remembering those experiences. It throws them away because they're not very useful. Yeah. The only thing that triggers attention is massive disruptions to the model. So things you don't expect to happen, right, in some fashion, trigger attention, which change the model. So for his, in his terms, Kahneman says, the remembering self is basically the stories we tell ourselves. And those stories have a couple of features that, in order to be a story. They need events. They need things to happen that are different. And your brain will remember a couple of those, the peak. And then it has to have an ending. The ending of the story is very important. It changes the story. Famously, it's a tragedy or a comedy if it ends in marriage or in death, right? So the ending of the story literally changes what kind of story it is, even if everything up to that point is the same. You have to go so, on a journey, right? Even if it's a good journey, a bad journey, or, or an indifferent journey, there still has to be a journey from where you're starting from and where you're ending and what happened on the way. And that, Exactly. There has to be changes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what defines a story, changes and an ending, right? So one of the things he observes is, <clears throat> from the point of view of the experiencing self, let's say you go on a vacation for a week. It's your ideal vacation. Whatever you want to do the most for that week, you do it. Beach or whatever. People like beaches, right? Now, from the point of view of the experiencing self, having a two-week vacation of that is twice as good as the first week vacation because you had double the amount of experience and it's all good. But if you do a two-week vacation, and this will be recognizable to people that have done two-week vacations with their kids, and you come back, your brain won't tell you that story. The story is the same as a one-week vacation because there's been no new events added to the story. 
Yeah. So the stories suffer what's called duration neglect, he refers to it as. It doesn't care how long something lasts. It just cares what the story is, and it files it as one story, and it posts it away. And I was like, huh. The more places I go to, the more I'm forced to be awake. Yeah. And that means my brain is always more on than if I was habitu habituating to commuting kind of endless pathway. So, yeah, I think I'll get better at thinking if I keep moving. And I'll remember literally more things about my own life. I will have more experiences, which will be like, looking back, more stories, which means in the same amount of the year, I will have more life from the point of view of the future than someone, than the version of me who was just going to the, to the office every, every day. You know, I'm very jealous. Um, far too late in life when I had a mortgage and kids and a wife that doesn't want to live any more than three miles from her mother, I thought, God, wouldn't it be amazing if I could just go around the world? Because the, the technology is such now that you're sat in a Mexican island yep. um, and we're having this conversation with me um, just south of London. Um, and, you know, you can do most things now. I know you, you said the office is good for some things. They call, Of course they are. Um, but you can do most things from anywhere now. And yep. um, so why wouldn't we? And um, this is, yeah. I mean, like, we obviously started this 10 years ago where that wasn't exactly the, the case. Like, you couldn't assume there'll be good Wi-Fi everywhere. You can more assume it now. Yeah. Uber just about existed. Airbnb just about existed, maybe. And as those things developed, it definitely made things easier. And then obviously, Pando happened. And suddenly, because of Pando, everyone had to adapt to the way that we've been working, kind of anyway, partially at least, for a while. So we were like, yeah, yeah this is. And I think, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting change. Like, I think people are trying to force people back into the office for obvious reasons. They have very expensive real estate deals that they can't get out of just because yeah. of the pandemic. So it's like they, they have to tell them that. But if, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think there's, to your point, yeah. the technology now is at a place where this is much more, it's much, e it's still not easy, but it's much easier than, than it was. Yeah, for sure. Um, so moving from traditional ways of working to perhaps newer ways of working uh, post-pandemic, let's talk about advertising. And um, in your book, in the first chapter, you talk about, or at least the first chapter of the book I've read. I haven't read the updated version yeah, yet. Yeah, but that one's still the same. I like that chapter. It, okay, cool. So it's, it's talking about the, um, the traditional model of advertising doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so could you tell us what you mean by the traditional um, model of advertising and what the non-traditional answer might be to that? Yeah, okay. I mean, like, obviously, I was making some grandiose claims and that I have, as I've got older and wiser, become strategically more nuanced, I'd say. I used to be a digitally um, evangelical person. As in, I grew up, I got online in 1994, I realized the internet felt different, I thought it was good. I didn't see necessarily the bad things that come with any big thing that changes because we were so excited about it. Basically, when I was a management consultant in the 90s, and throughout my, my chief digital officer jobs in various agencies, a lot of the time I was like, have you seen the internet? It seems like this is an important thing to think about. And then at a certain point, like five years ago, eight years ago, everyone, people, the whole way, people realized that. And the internet is now 70% of advertising spend in the UK. Yeah. So maybe that there's a correction necessary there because I'm not sure that that makes sense, really. No. Um, so what I meant was, what I meant was, PVRs, uh, uh, what are they called? TiVos. People had the ability to not watch ads, right? And yeah. Netflix was existing 
and a section of people, as Scott Galloway pointed out, will simply pay the ads to go away in every content experience they can do that in. And so yeah. a segment of the humanity, a segment of the audiences, a growing segment, one side of it anyway, will simply not see interruptive advertising and ad blockers exist and the ability to screen out things and so on, right? So I was like, that doesn't seem to be a winner. <laughs> now I was probably wrong about that. Uh, but what I what I hope would happen. Quite famous, didn't they? The early days of the internet. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, please. Said, oh, I think Any this time. is a passing fad. This won't. This will never last. I can't remember who it was now, but can you imagine being that person now, thinking couldn't have got that much further from the truth? Um, just quite an incredible statement I mean, to look like, back on. Time yeah. is probably not without merit. Like the thing is, as people have always told me, and like you know, a hundred people rejected the, the Beatles' first album and the Harry Potter first book, and Predicting what's going to work creatively is impossible, right? Nobody mm. knows anything, as William Goldman once said. You have to take a portfolio model approach. Hence, all record labels and movie studios and publishers produce many things of which all 90% lose money and 10% make some money and 1% makes massive amounts of money. If you could predict which 1%, then you would just do mm. that, wouldn't you? But you can't. Because yeah. no. it, isn't, it isn't just the product itself that matters. It's the moment in time. It's the interaction between the system and culture and loads of randomness. So for example, I think I read about this in Hitmakers, that Derek Thompson book, which is really good. There was a song that got really, 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 really big. That like was number one, massive billboard chart, was voted top 100 pop songs of the year by a band called Fun. Right. And it was on a Chevy ad that Goodby did in the Super Bowl. Why it's interesting is because it was released as a single with radio promotion and advertising a year before. Didn't even chart got to like the bottom of the chart, a couple, people, a couple of radio stations, Lord, didn't care, no one cared, it vanished. The same record, the same exact creative artifact released a year later via the, the boost of a Super Bowl spot became one of the top pop, pop songs of all time. Same yeah. song, song didn't change. So that's yeah. the thing, right? The system... I think that's more common than, than, than you might think. I, um, I worked with Shazam in the, in the early days oh, of um, Shazam being a thing and, and they, they could see that advertising was definitely driving people saying, oh, what's that song? You know, it was a, definitely a way of finding songs um, sort of 15 years ago. It was, it was, you know, it was big. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I remember when I worked at a record label, Shazam called us up and they said, can you send us all of your records and like whatever so we can scan them into our database? And I was like, what? What does this mean? I don't understand. Mm. And like, this is 2000 maybe when they launched, 2001? Probably even earlier, 2000, maybe 2001. Anyway, it was fascinating, right? Yeah. Um, but so there was an idea that interruption could be stripped from content, that the business model would break down, and that the contextual association between media and, and advertising that was so important if you were a media or a commerce planner would cease to, to work. And that was true. That's what happened. That's what programmatic does. Programmatic strips context from advertising and puts it anywhere, making yeah. it bad most of the time in my opinion, because it isn't thinking about the context enough, it's thinking about the cost, which is the wrong so place I talk to start. About it as the, if you think about the holy trinity of the right message to the right person at the right time, when programmatic came about, we forgot about the right time and just wanted the right person. And we were so doubling down on the right person, we would go to um, a site that I affectionately, I really hope it doesn't exist, but um, a collection of sites that I, I, I give a moniker of shit.com yeah. and we'll go and find them there because it's yes. the right person. But we forget about well, what, where exactly is our advertising it. appearing? What yeah. are we in, in front of? You know, what, What's around us? Yeah. So when I was at uh, what was called MDC, we set up the first trading desk inside the holding company system. It was called Varick Media Management. 
And it immediately became the most profitable part of the entire business, which I thought was interesting. I was like, that's weird. What's it doing? And then somebody told me that we're doing audience buying. We're finding exactly a point. The audience is expensive on FT.com or the New York Times, and we're finding the same exact audience somewhere cheaper. And I said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. Yeah. That's the opposite of what advertising is. Like, that's just stupid, in my opinion. However, I was not uh, listened to, and the rest of the industry thinks it was great. So whatever. That's a shame. So I guess... Yeah. I don't think FT and New York Times thought it was that great, but yeah, I, I take your point. <laughs> Sorry, yes, exactly. It, it's, yeah. yeah, it's I, and it's, I thought strategically it was an error, personally. Yes. And yeah. um, I guess we'll see if that's error. It's easy with, well, well I mean, it, you saw it in, in, you know, at the time, in real time, if you like. Oh. I, I've probably only seen it in hindsight because, you know, all progress tends to be heralded as a good thing. Oh, it's new and this is exciting and especially yeah. marketing, right? The new thing is what we want. We, the, the amount of briefs I've seen, the, the amount of media briefs in my life I've seen, it said we want to do something new, something different. Of course. Uh, which kind of makes sense. because media first, you know, as they used to be called. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But there's only so many times I, I grew up in press and then moved into to digital, but there's only so many new things you can do with a 25 by four, you know, like, um, it's, it's difficult, but agreed. And like that there is a value in novelty, right? If you are the first person to do something interesting, you can generate a multiple on your media spend by creating PR around that, that thing. If it is interesting. However, a lot of those things were just part of a media buy creative package, essentially where you can just, it's one thing you can give to the client for the case study and say, this was the first thing, right? It became not a strategic creative tool. It became a case study trading tool, if that makes sense. And that was the problem yeah. with it, I think. Um, so I was Innovation. like, you know, it, yeah. Can, yeah. can we think about things differently? And can brands earn the right to talk to people in more fulfilling fashions and, and do things? And I, and I think that industry did grow up. We used to call it utility. But now it's basically CX, which is a huge part of We were just speaking for a, for the so SODA, the Society of Digital Agencies, which is a, independent agency trade body that we work did a gig with and we like um like probably two-thirds of digital agencies that you know the things that grew up in the 90s 2000s to do digital advertising most of them have moved away from digital advertising as much as they can towards things like cx digital product design digital transformation and so on they've moved back to being what they were which is consultancies like you know razorfish was a consultancy before it became an ad agency right way before and then it turned into an agency and then it got turned back into a, anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So thinking about, um, the creative uh, process in advertising and thinking about advertising yeah. that you remember, it's, yeah. it's very hard not to take the consumer, the mic, the consumer and, um, extrapolate that across my professional life but mm -hmm. if i think cool. about i was in, in preparation for this this conversation um I, I was trying to think of the advertising that i remember from recent times um and there's three campaigns the first one was for marmite chili which is basically marmite as far as i can tell i've not tried the product but um that's spicy yeah um and there was a, a 96 sheet poster yep. and there was a car parked in front of the poster and the the, the marmite uh, jar had the lid off and the lid was embedded, like an actual lid was embedded in the windscreen of the car in front yeah, of it. I've seen it. It's good. Fantastic campaign. The second one was... Um, well, I, think I would it say it's not a campaign. I would say it's a special build. It's a single poster. Fine. Yes. Well, I think you're... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm coming to the same uh, end point as you are with this. So the second one was um, PlayStation when they launched the PS5, yeah. which... I still can't tell if this was a successful launch or not because I couldn't get one for my son for a year. I still can't get the, one, I don't think. It's too much yeah. work. 
it's it, we've kind of given up. It's not it's not cool anymore. It's like there'll be a PlayStation Six soon. But anyway, that park that for a second, and then the, the four sort of um, badges, if you like, that are on a PlayStation controller, so oh, the square, yeah. the circle, right. the triangle, and the and the X. There was big um, illuminated um, models of these ac across uh, London tube stations. Yep. Um, and the third campaign is for Specsavers. And there's, a, again, a 96 poster up the side of a wall. And then there's a, a, a real-world ladder like up to the poster, which somebody would, of course, used to, to put the poster up. And the poster's over the top of the ladder, and it's obviously yep. should have got spec savers. It's now, great. They're, I, they're love all, I love those pieces. Yeah. I use them all the time in, in workshops. So I'm like, look at that. That's yeah. Cool. They're fantastic, right? They're so creative. They, they're really difficult to ignore. I think... I think even people that are not in advertising would look at that and think, okay, that's quite clever. Yeah. Uh, but it's really difficult to extrapolate yourself from the advertising me from the consumer me. <laughs> but that's what I think. But what they've got in common is they're all pieces of outdoor advertising yep. that I've never seen outdoor, but I've seen multiple times online. Um, so kind of in a roundabout sort of way, Ferris, what I'm, what I'm getting to is what do you think um, about the state of creativity in online advertising at the moment? Let's let's put that, hang on, let's do the first bit and then put the creativity okay. online thing, which is a whole different thing and we should talk about because it's interesting okay. and there's bits of it that I think are complex. But, so three special builds, right? They're all they're, Three of them are all special builds. Now, they're interesting because they take a format that we understand and they mess with it. So that was always the stuff that we loved at Naked. We're like, don't just use media the way they want you to use it. Always try and work out what else you can do with it on principle because it makes it more interesting. Can I have a circular page inserted instead of a square page? Can I have a different space, a different shape? Can I do it in a different way? Can I make an ad that doesn't fit like an ad? Can I, can I squeeze it into a sponsorship bumper in some way? Can I anyway, that's always what we were interested in because we realized, right, the story of advertising since the late 90s till now is one story. It is the story of media fragmentation. That is it, right? Everything apart from that is implementational concerns. What happened was there was two channels, three channels, then four channels, then five channels, and you could reach all of people with two broadcast spots, mm. maybe three spots. You could do that. Advertising worked in a cultural way because there were only three people who could make things public, who could publish. Yeah. The government... And it was one to many. There was no right to reply as well. There's the yeah. other thing, right? Well, you could write yeah. into the letters pages and you could write into the BBC. But yes, obviously. So it's like, we could do it at scale. The government through the CIA could do it. And then like the media companies could do it. And that's it, right? No one else could make content and make everybody see that content. So we had this weirdly free mediascape. There was no clutter apart from what we charmingly call clutter, which is everybody else's advertising, right? <laughs> that was it. Yeah. And then media began to fragment. And th the first bit of that wasn't just the messiness of digital now. It was just there's more channels. More money can go into different places. Pub media became a big deal. Ambient spam became a big deal in the UK. Like sponsorship, uh, events, experiences became a thing. And nobody was really doing that well. But that means that reaching people got harder. Putting together plans that gave you the same level of reach became more and more expensive, prohibitively so, and then functionally impossible. Okay. That's what's been happening. It's what's always been happening. It's been everything for the last 25 years. That's basically the story of advertising. What's happening now then? Well, lots of people still watch telly. I believe Barb and I believe Nielsen. Millions don't, but I do most of the time. And mm -hmm. um, even though Nielsen's been discredited in the US because they keep making mistakes. But, you know. Anyway, 
People do. Yeah. People still apparently watch broadcast TV with ads. Apparently now. I have to believe the companies to some degree on this with a degree of media skepticism, of course, because I don't consume like normal humans, and none of us do. As Ritson is fond of saying, you are not the market, right? Yeah. Ad yeah. people famously in the UK and elsewhere consume media very differently to the average normal person in the world. The more we work in advertising, the less like a normal person in our media consumption and passing of advertising we are. Therefore, our opinions become expert in some fashion and wrong in other fashions. I don't live anywhere in particular, so I only see TV on streaming platforms. I do not see the ads, except I seek them out because this is my industry, right? Okay. Even in the UK, however, if you wish something to bubble up into the discourse, to rise above the cacophony of people, ideas, activists, brands, trying to get some very valuable attention, you have to think differently about how you do advertising because the likelihood is you are not the biggest brand in the world or the country or your category. One brand is. They can afford to buy enough media to do old style advertising. You probably can't. Now, yeah. the strategic answer in Ehrenberg Bassian terms is to reduce your target audience so you can reach them. Yeah, okay. Somewhat satisfying. I'm not sure it's brilliant. I think the alternative response that the industry has created, because we are prone to trying to make things famous, because we understand at a deep intuitive level that is the job of advertising to make things famouser, because famouser things sell more for more money to more people. So in the last decade or so, one-off PR driving stunts became the thing we began to look at and do because they generate attention at a multiple of the media we can afford and we can demonstrate how that, that much media reach is useful. Yeah. So these are all PR ideas, hence my whole thing, everything is PR. I don't mean everything is what a PR agency should be doing, I mean the audience now is part of the mediascape and is constantly making noises and if you want to engage them you have to think about everything a company does from how it pays its taxes to how much it pays its CEO to what the CEO tweets as something which engages the public, hence has to be a, a, understood through the lens of PR, yeah, because it is going to create impressions. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very similar to what we do at Six Cells, right? So, what we do at Six Cells is we work with companies in our industry, but we work with the people rather than the, than the brands, and mm. we help the people to be more active um, on the likes of LinkedIn and Twitter and places like that. So they talk about their ideas and their thoughts and and um, how the industry is going and how their business can help. And that's, as you say, it's PR or it's um, advertising. You could call it either, but it's it's important, right? Because it's it's now not one to many; it's all one to one now everything's like everyone's a publisher everyone's a media owner everyone's a content producer yes. every, you know like yeah but it's a couple of things one which is yes and ghostwriters have always written all this stuff right so advertising is ghostwriting for brands that's what advertising is yeah. we don't put our names yeah. on our things right and yeah. speeches for ceos and presidents are written by professional speechwriters, not by themselves Equally, yeah. there is a massive business for ghostwriting VC tweets and LinkedIn posts, right? You, yeah. And you can smell them. They're all that kind of, that's how, it's what happens, right? Ghostwriting. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Okay. But the thing about one-to-one -one is you can't grow one-to-one -one unless you have a very, like, a very small business that doesn't like growing like ours. Growing one-to-one <laughs> -one is super, it's not, it's not, it's not a viable because way. Because you're traveling, of, right? If, it, if it's too busy. You can't, yeah. Exactly. I don't want yeah. to be too busy. I, I did that yeah. for a long time. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. 
But like one-to-one doesn't scale. You can't become famous by meeting people individually, by going around the world. And, and the Shaking problem out. is, the reason for that is, and this is the point, I think, is that this is why people misunderstand. When, when is it, oh, Mark, the P&G guy, said, we, you know, we're going to do a, um, what is it, one to, personalize one-to-one at scale. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a misunderstanding of how advertising works, the problem, right? Because even if I individually go and meet every single person in the world, they won't collectively think that everybody else knows me. And part of what we're doing is making you aware that other people know about this as well. That's yeah. The, that's the I was talking to Sam Ritson about uh, Sam Ritson. I've just um, mixed two names. Up. Sorry, Sam Tatum, uh, the head of behavioral science at Ogilvy. And he, and he okay. was he was talking to me about that, about how the, the message becomes more believable if we also know that other people have seen it. Um, it's not social, just that we've seen it. So if you go one-to-one and you tell somebody, oh, this is what we do and this is what we believe, that's fine. But if you tell people publicly that that's what you do and that's what you believe, then it's more believable because there's reputational cost to you to say it. Yeah, it's, exactly. There's very little reputational cost in you having a one-to-one conversation with me and telling me you can walk on water. And you can uh, lie. And you can make exactly. the same. Yeah, but if you said that publicly, then it'd be, <laughs> in it, because of our evolutionary process, okay, well, that is probably true then. You, you're beholden, right? To some degree, yeah. you're held responsible for what you've said and yeah. being a brand in some ways is a mark of like a right to reply a, a, a mark of if I get sick with this picture on this product there is somebody I can go and get into trouble who will be legally required to pay me off or get rid of me in some legal fashion because they have more better lawyers than me but whatever there is some right to that right um, which I think is an important part of branding which is like yeah that thing but yeah I Part of it is just what Ambler wrote in the 2000s, right? It's the peacock, the handicap principle. It is it's spending money. The wastage is the part that works, he would say, which is like being visible is a show of strength and branding is about demonstrating that you are strong in some evolutionary fitness way, right? Yes. And part yeah. of it is just if everyone's getting a different message, I don't really believe anything I see from a brand. If I don't yeah. see other people seeing it, it could be a lie. Yeah, and that's challenging nowadays because there's a lot of not true things, as I said, on the internet. So, so at Six Cells, we only work with B two B brands, and then we work with the people in those B two B brands. But the way we think about it, and it'd be interesting to know if you have a similar thought process for B two C brands, is the way we think about it is there needs to be a single communication strategy which mm-hmm. is these are the one or two or three things that we think that we need to tell the market and then we find creative interesting ways for people to tell those um to communicate those things um whereas um, i i listened to a podcast that you um that you did recently Uh-oh. you were talking about the the one page creative brief mm-hmm. um, is it a similar idea that you have to kind of basically distill the brand and the product down to a really small number of things that you can communicate consistently. Does that does that feel right to you? Is yeah, that there's a more or less because right? Because of, yes, basically, because of a couple of things that are sort of structural. It's hard to communicate more than one thing in five seconds or even thirty seconds. And there's a lot of research which shows that. If you try and talk about five different things, no one remembers those five things. Try and talk about one thing, yeah. they might remember that one thing. And yeah, so I say, say one thing, say it simply, say it often. Um, <laughs> if you've got five things to say about your brand and you have to say five things, that's five campaigns, not one campaign with five points. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and we 
talk about this a lot with clients and agencies. There's a number of reasons, though. One, which is that's how creatives have been trained. Two, those are the media opportunities we're assuming we're going to be using, right? <laughs> like, if I'm writing an essay and I just write one thing again and again and again, that's not a good paper, right? That's not a good bit. Of, like, if I write an article, I can't just, you know what I mean? There's, there's different approaches to different channels. But because we assume we're going to use these channels that have very low attentional thresholds, we have to say one thing. Yeah. Two, if you take Specsavers, should have gone to Specsavers, yeah. there's a million different ways they brought that to life, right? But yeah. it's still the same message. Yes, so that's what they call yeah. a fluent device, right? Yeah. So system one research, not system one Kahneman. Yeah. In Orlando uh, Wood's book, uh, Look Out, the second one, it talks about oh, the first one, the fluent device, I think, which is like a higher order distinctive asset, i.e. a brand character or a narrative framework, which is deeply integrated into the line in some fashion, like should have gone to Specsavers. It's the punchline yeah. to any joke. You can tell it any way as long as somebody misses something at some point. Yes. And it's a joke. Yeah. And there is yeah. brilliant reels on YouTube. If they run it in Australia, that campaign, they run it in another, a couple of the markets. And there's like a Post and Pat version. There's like an, there's loads of animated versions. There's, there's been doing it for 20 years. They have yeah. so many and they're so varied, right? And, and yeah. that variation is possible if everything is very easy to anchor back to a thing that everybody already knows because it's already famous. Yes. I used to want to think things to be more interesting, right? And like, I think John Grant said this. We talk a lot about consistency with branding. And he's like, yeah, but consistency, who's consistent? Liars are consistent, right? People are coherent. If I met you and you said the same exact nonsense every single time, you'd become very boring and very strange very quickly. Why are we trying to make brands act like liars and not like normal people? And the reason I think is because no one's got enough time for a brand to care about them as a real person. They just don't, they just don't care and they never will. And the amount of times we have to put in front of them is now much less than it was 20 years ago. So we have to be yeah. even more focused, even more consistent, even more sharply identifiable because <clears throat> there's not enough attention in the space <clears throat> that we can easily get, basically. For sure. You might want to have a quick uh, slurp of your beer there. Right, um, yeah, a little bit of a cough. I'm still a bit ill. We have, um, my wife's a bit ill too. <clears throat> I think everybody is ill at the moment. Everyone, we, we, are, we tested for COVID. It's not that this time, thank goodness. But um, yeah. everyone is a bit ill at the moment, it seems. Well, I hope you, uh, you bounce back very quickly. So we're, we're talking about advertising. We're talking about brand advertising. And yeah. um, it seems to me I'm not, I guess, an expert. I'm more of a commentator and an, an interested student of this but it seems to me that the way that you get attention to a brand advert in the first place and then have recall happen afterwards in buying situations is by creating some sort of emotional connection at the point of delivery yes um, so um would you agree with that i mean there, there's been some eye tracking uh, studies we were talking offline before yeah. um uh, Mike Follett at Lumen Research um, has done a number of these. I know Karen Nelson-Field yep. um, at Amplified Intelligence. Um, but I've seen a number of studies where eye tracking was used to um, to try and measure this stuff. And then, sorry, I should add a third to, the, to that trilogy, um, Neuro, Neuro Insight yep. um, out of the US. Um, it was um, Shazi Ganai at the time. She's, she's uh, since moved on. And, and they measure brain waves in, in relation to advertising. And she was yep. sort of saying that people have these brand rooms, if you like, and they're not obviously actually brand rooms. They're 
like um, neurons firing, if you like. But if there was a Cadbury brand room, it might be purple. Yep. Uh, it might have a glass and a half of milk on the table with a drumming gorilla in the corner, for example, yep. right? So it's building these associations and feelings um, that kind of... We got to work on of, the, the, re- the digital stuff for the gorilla with Fallon. So uh-huh. Naked, Naked, the digital version of that and the remixes and stuff. We did all that, which was nice. Do you know what? It's one of my most disappointing moments in media, that, that particular campaign. I was working for a company called Blink TV yep. that did huge screens at music concerts yeah, yeah, and sporting events and stuff like that and, and genesis were doing twickenham stadium it was at the time where that ad was out which is obviously phil collins in the air tonight and i i sold the campaign into the agency and they were going to put it up before the band came on stage and phil collins himself went no it doesn't feel right because that's my song not genesis and it feels a little bit like i'm being trying to be too big i was like no that would have gone down so well Shame. there anyway because of context because of the power yes. of contextual resonance perfect I have another version of that with Sheila's wheels in front of a pink concert. It was a, a campaign of ladies dressed in pink in a pink Cadillac um, yeah. selling women's car insurance in front of a, an audience that was 90% women dressed in pink. I mean, again, it was perfect, um, but I digress. So so, so the question I want... Oh, sorry, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, go on. no, go on, go on. Now, I was going to ask you, so if you had... Um, if you had your uh, emotional ad that you were you were setting out to make and you had all of these different ingredients that you could use, what would be the most important ones do you think that you would call upon? Sorry, hang on. That's okay. Um, sorry, uh, I'll, give me a second. Sorry. Uh, yeah, okay, I made 20 minutes maybe. Sorry. Can you repeat that? Okay. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. So my question was, yeah. um, if you were setting out to create an advert that created some sort of emotional connection with its audience um obviously it depends on the type of emotion that you were trying to elicit but what um what would be the key ingredients that you would be looking for in that advert okay so this is yeah so look adverts have to do like these three things they have to somehow attract attention they have to be noticeable and stand out among the fit that these are sort of the same thing not exactly They've got to be noticeable enough and distinctive within their category to be interesting, your brain to remember it distinctively and attribute it appropriately to that brand. And they have to elicit emotion. The reason they have to elicit emotion is because that's how your brain decides to remember things. If there's no emotional response to something, your brain will not remember it. Your brain only remembers things that have emotions associated with them. That's why if you get depressed for a long time, you won't remember a lot of that period because your brain is not putting emotions to experiences, severing them. Right, so that's why we do those things. I actually wrote this. Sli- I wrote a slide. We have a workshop about this, but I wrote the slide how to emotion, because it, it's very simple to say those three things. It is impossible to say how great writers and filmmakers and musicians stir emotions in the human soul. Right, that is a very complex thing to ask somebody. However, there are some obvious parts to it. I think the ingredient levels. Right. Again, if you look at Orlando's book, Look Out, he's very specific about this. They measure emotional responses through, like, facial-coded things. Um, Although it isn't actually facial tracking, it's actually selecting emotional buttons, which isn't quite the same thing, but, you know, it's fine. Um, And they look at this, and they look at the multiplier effect that's generated from certain emotions, and they look at the decompiling of ads, as does Kantar now, about what seems to be emotionally driving. And, like, it's just, like... Orlando's point, which is very simple, I think, is that it's the same thing as the stuff that we've always found emotional. People doing stuff in specific situations uh, where they're frustrated in some fashion from what their goals are, but ultimately achieve achieve those goals or don't. Tragedy, comedy. Things that make us laugh or don't or make us cry, right? That's what triggers emotions. Now, is that easy? No. 
See, my jokes make people laugh and cry. Um, is that is that double whammy or is that double negative? <laughs> I mean, as long as it's memorable. No, I, I think puns. Crying are, on the I outside. Think I think much I like maligned. to laughing on the inside. I believe puns to be much maligned, both in the cultural discourse and the advertising discourse. I think puns, deftly handled, are an extraordinarily powerful rhetorical, literary, and advertising tool. Um, and I think that the, 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 the shunning of puns is misguided, and it's about trying to be above what we are. Like, we're somehow we too good for puns. And I'm like, no, yeah. we're not too good for puns. We're not too good for anything. We work in advertising, right? That's nonsense. Mm. But that was easier when you had 30 seconds of time to tell a little story. The kinds of emotions that advertising in billboard form elicits don't tend to be the same sort of emotions as the heart-wrenching, I just had a baby and now I'm going to go to the, the home goods store to buy whatever, Right different sort of emotional triggering is that you can do without door and they tend to be more like oh i get it or that's clever or that's funny you know what i mean that's a different kind of emotion because it's not realistic very often to try and elicit anything richer um from uh, a one second glance at something nicely designed right but i think you still need to do something with it like yeah so it's tricky however i think there's a second and there's a new bit of this i think that's, that's i just I think, so, of late, according to barometers of trust and whatnot, let's say, there's generally a declining sense of trust and belief in the goodwill of large global corporations. Yeah. I think we're marginally above politicians and bankers, if I remember right. Yeah, so, um, like, ad people come to the bottom of those lists now, but, like, yeah. companies themselves particularly during, let's say, aggressive inflationary periods where their profits continue to rise supra to the inflationary rises. Like the idea that we're all in this together, that we heard a lot from brands during the pando, feels less and less likely to resonate with people because it's just like, oh yeah, I don't believe you anymore, sorry. So you can get yeah. around this by not saying these things directly and telling funny little stories instead and people aren't so on their guard, right? But I'll say this, there's a tweet I saw this morning, right, about this. Oh, come on, don't just start again. Twitter, what are you doing? While you're trying to find that, we've got, um, just as a, an illustration of that, we've got um, the, the, the cost of f- uh, heating your house now has like trebled or something yeah. like that in the UK, um, yet record profits are being um, sort of posted by the energy companies. Um, and we're being told it's because of the war in Ukraine and because of, you know, all of these things. But, like, but as, a, as, a, as a punter, if you like, as Dave Trott might call us, yeah. you're thinking, but, but then have less profits. Like, we don't, why, you, why have you got more profit and, and yeah. we're having to pay three times as much? They, those things don't seem to correlate. Agreed. No, mm. it's tricky, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes. And it's because of a certain understanding of fiduciary responsibility imported from America, where you have to maximize profit, otherwise you're not doing a good management job. It's a, a an attempt to solve what's called the principal agent problem, which is people who run companies don't necessarily own those companies. And then in some sense, shareholders own those companies, although they actually don't, because shareholders own securities that are derived from those companies' actions that are not part of ownership. Anyway, it's complicated, and it annoys me that it's been simplified to the point where making more profit and shareholder value is the only thing that matters. However, here's what it says, right? Here's what it says. I didn't cry at the, I'm not gonna say the name of the brand, it's not fair, but it's a Christmas ad, a very famous Christmas ad in the UK, one of the many that comes from a retailer 
that Christmas does well, right? And we all know these ads. Yes. And this is a, this is a pundit, not an advertising, a journalist, a, a journalist. I didn't cry at the ex-retailer here ad. Feeling again out of kilter with the national mood. Here's the reply from some, another journalistic pundit. I didn't either. Wondered if was something wrong with me. Then I remembered that it's a sheep in corporate consumerist wolf's clothing, and so it has no actual emotional weight and can never have so. Ouch. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, at a certain point, the behavior of a company... In a world where, as Naked would say, companies stand naked in front of consumers because everything they do, we will find out about eventually. Yeah. Like 60 years ago, you could hide your research into climate change pretty effectively. You could pay away the stories if you needed to. You can't really do that anymore, for better and worse. And now we will find out. And the news will report on these profits and how you choose to share them with your employees or not. Yeah. And at a certain point, I think that it's beginning to, if not already has begun to, affect how advertising can work because the behavior of the companies appears to be misaligned with the utterances so beautifully rendered by our industry. Mm. I'll give you a weird, not weird, but a tragic example of that, I suppose. Um, in 1989, there was a, a football disaster in the UK at Hillsborough. Mm -hmm. um, it's yep. now known as, as the Hillsborough disaster, right? And I, and I made a documentary and wrote a book about it. And there was CCTV outside the ground that had been available for years and years and years that was buried that showed that the, the fans didn't misbehave in any way, shape or form, but that, that that didn't suit the police narrative at the time because they wanted to say that fans turned up late and they were yep. ticketless. Um, and it, when it finally came out, um, it was like, how can, how can they have buried this for so long? But if that happened today, it would have been on YouTube in 10 minutes. Um, so they would not, well, they wouldn't have been able to do that. Right. And, and, and it's what's such the a change. Impact of this? We have the Met police in London on notice. We have a number of police bodies around England that have been getting away, apparently, getting away with this sort of thing for a long time and are now being held somewhat semi-slightly accountable because the visibility is impossible to hide. And so, yeah. and the impact is, you know, Chris Cressida gets removed as the chief commissioner because it isn't just one isolated thing. It's a persistent pattern of these sorts of behaviours that every independent adjudicatory body that looks into it goes, what, what? Yeah. Amazing. So I, I feel like I may have taken more of your time than you offered me. So um, apologies for that. I'm going to I'm going to wrap up. Because that's not you your fault. That's, it was mine. We were, we were too excited talking before we started recording, but that's fine. It's a fair point. Um, so Strands of Genius, your newsletter. Tell us. T tell me about that. Okay, so Strands is something we've been running for, I guess, over a decade. It started when we were still in New York and in various forms and then became a part of Genius Steals. Um, so it comes out twice a week. The, the gist of it is that the first edition, me and Rosie write, usually together, but sometimes, you know, one or the other does more. You'll be able to tell from the, the tone if it's me or if it's Rosie, almost, I'm sure, right? And then yeah. three links of interesting things. Uh, they're very broadly uh, interesting, and so we try and make it broad. We want to be, and just musings and that kind of stuff, right? So we have like 13 or 14,000 subscribers from the industry, both marketing and advertising all over the world, but heavily concentrated in America and, and the English speaking countries and colonies, inevitably, right? Um, and then something we took, we started doing a few years ago, which is a massive logistical exercise on our part, but we think is valuable, 
is that every second edition of the week on Thursday, we curate somebody we've met or encountered around the world that we think is interesting. And they write their edition. They introduce themselves to our community, which is part of the reason we do this. Um, and they share some stuff that they're into. And it can't be too self-promotional. Only one bit can be. Because we don't believe. We, yeah. we like... So we like content, right? Our newsletter is content. We don't try and sell through our newsletter. We just we want people to keep reading it. And if yeah. they like the way we think, then they'll find things they want to work on with us, and that's great. Yeah. But um, we are trying to grow it a bit more just towards the end of the year. So we, we're doing a giveaway at the end of this month. Various curated cu creators are giving their, their products, their, 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 their art, their time, um, and that will be sort of lotteried out for the audience. Um, and if you help share and spread the word, you'll get more entries and so on. Um, but we found it to be very valuable. We've had a lot of people we've met thanks to the newsletter. And I, as a middle-aged now white, passing white man, um, have only ever found value being online, right? That's part of it. I'm not in a place where I get a lot of hate. I get some hate, don't get me wrong. Mm. People get hate, it just happens, right? But in general, I've met people all over the world and I've made friends that way and I've been traveling on my own in countries and just been on their tweets and say, I'll be in this pub. I used to run a thing called Beersphere before Twitter. I used to blog and I set up a thing called Beersphere because <clears throat> we called it the, the Planosphere at the time. We planners that blogged. And I'd go around the world and just try and meet people that worked in what I did. And, and it was great, you know? It was really great and it was fun and that was cool. Um, as the socials and all that stuff got more difficult, I think the newsletter is a... You know, it's a channel, an owned channel that is not currently at least susceptible to the whims of billionaires um, deciding to break my toy. Um, yeah. So I think there's a, a value in it and people seem to like it. And so, yeah. Talking of billionaires breaking your toy, you've got over 40,000, 41,000 followers on, on Twitter at the moment. That hasn't broken, is it? That's still uh, it's gone down a little bit. There's some declining numbers, but it's not. Uh, it's more. I mean, it's interesting. Like I have a blue check, right, which I wrote about in Strands last week, and I've had it for a very long time. I got onto Twitter 2006, and I tweet a lot. Historically, I tweeted a very large amount, and then I realised that there's some things. That it's not super good for my brain to mainline news that much of the day. Like I will get depressed. It is bad for my head. Mm. I understand this yeah. now, but I had to learn that and. There's a great deal of value in it, right? But now it's a mess. It's just a mess right now. And um... do you know it's so interesting? I, I stopped watching the news quite a long time ago, years ago. I just just thought this. I can't do anything about it. So yeah. what is what, what's the point in having it in my head? Um, I can't. Yeah, you know, I can't do anything with it other than it just make me depressed about the way some people are or some you know relationships are. So I just. So now I, I guess you would say I was a little bit ignorant about some things, um, which it's is tricky, a downside of it. It's I, very I think tricky. It's I think healthier to be ignorant. Most of it isn't important enough to remember a lot of the time, but mm. I think a lot of people have had this reaction. Um, and, you know, the, the doom scrolling of the Pando kind of was already a kind of reaction to the digital detoxing that we were already seeing before that. You know, people were like, this isn't good for my brain. Um, and probably nothing is if you do it all the time. Good for your brain, right? Maybe, I don't... I think that's just normal. Um, yeah, I tend to spend most of my time on LinkedIn because professionally that's where I work and also it's yeah. more about business and things that 
because the people on LinkedIn um, have a reputation to uphold because they're not anonymous, like they, you know, some people yeah. on Twitter, yeah. then it tends to be a little bit more respectful um, and um, constructive, I would say. And like, um, yeah, the, the news thing is like, I equally, I, I am a news junkie to some degree, but I, I sort of absorb the discourse more broadly than just news. And I try and detune my, you know, politics aspect of that. I try and, I, I try and, part of what I think about how I think about what I do is to put as much stuff into my head from diverse sources as much as I can and then shake it around and see what connects and comes back out. Right. Mm. But I have to be conscious of it. And the news, I think because it, to your point, people who it's totally in an arms race with itself, 24 hour breaking, like attention hacking. And because of doing that, it's made it an uncomfortable experience for many people, except people who watch it as rage porn and are thriving off five to six hours of Fox News every day so they can believe that their version of reality exists, which yeah. it doesn't in any verifiable sense. Um, so it's basically... Supporting news is an important thing that advertising does. I believe in that very strongly. Journalism is a required part of democracy to function, and I think that's an important thing. It used to be, in the US at least, when you were granted a broadcast license, when CBS and ABC were given radio and TV licenses, right? Basically licenses to print money by generating scarcity and then like selling it and being the only people that could do that. Part of the job came with the obligation to make news. To be a broadcaster was to have obligations. To be a company was to have obligations. Since that time, very smart corporate financiers and lawyers said, we'd like to have all the responsibility, all the rights of, of people as companies, speech and so on. Oh, we don't think we should have the responsibilities though. That doesn't seem right to us. And they've carved out this space where, so news becomes a product by itself. And if news is a product, it has to make money. And if it has to be maximized, it has to be cheaper, which means you invest less in journalism and more in shouting. And it has to attract attention, which means it has to compete for sensationalism and so on and so forth and so on and so forth, right? So it's like, used to be there was responsibilities to be allowed to be media. And I think when everything is a product, that's, that doesn't seem to make sense to people anymore. No. I wish there were a site where you could find only the facts without any spin at all and then you could make your own mind up. Because there's so much spin on everything. You can read the same you can read about the same thing in my mm -hmm. in the Telegraph, my old employer and the Guardian and come away with wildly different um understanding of what happened, right? I would like to just have someone that literally takes all of the adjectives out and just says this is what happened this is the facts of the matter yeah. now think for yourself it's impossible, unfortunately because what constitutes yeah. a fact what level of granularity of reality are you talking about then the person stands up then the person drinks a cup of tea if i don't choose to mention those things i've made an editorial decision which things then i choose to mention are by its nature editorial even if they look like facts Unless I'm describing reality in perfect realistic terms in real time, which is impossible, that's just not possible. And that's the whole point of why you need media literacy, right? People cannot assume that the media is true. They should look to the source. They look to the byline. They understand the politics of those organs, who owns them, what the preferences is of the ownership structure, and then begin to triangulate and decode different media 
to try and get a sense of reality. But we don't teach media literacy to people enough. And so we just kind of tribalize our consumption to make ourselves feel better because the world seems scary. Yeah. I feel that that's a whole nother conversation that we probably don't have time for, but um, Excuse me. <laughs> no problem. That was probably good timing then because yeah, I have no. Paris, listen, I love your writing. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Um, I would highly recommend your book. Um, I'm well, the first version at least. I haven't read the, the uh, updated 2022 version, which I will do. Um, probably sometime after the 25th of December, because um, that's going to go in my on my Christmas list. Um, I, I haven't, I must admit, um, checked out Strands of Genius, but I love your writing, so I'm sure um, there's going to be some gold there. I would definitely check that out. Thank you so much for your time. Um, sorry to keep you from your um, Mexican island. I'm, no, I'm sure your, no, your weather is... and view is probably a lot better than mine right now. But, I very um... much, I can show you the view if you want. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for your time and for reaching out.